welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to, to be in, in your house with your people. And uh, Lord, as we sang, you are the best of fathers. Lord, that um, whether we've had good experiences with fathers or bad experiences, Lord, you are the one that shines forth as the ultimate father, the one who's cared for us even before we were born, as we're going to see in this text tonight. And we just pray, Lord, as we gather around your table, as your kids, as your sons and your daughters, we pray, Lord, that you would feed us once again by your spirit, that we would sense your deep love for us, that we would sense the security that this promise gives, and that we'd be altered by it. Lord, and as Paul says here, that this is something he knows, I pray, Lord, that we would know it, that we would know it down the deepest parts of our soul, that you cause all things to work together for good. We pray, Lord, that you would do this in our hearts. We pray for those who don't know you as father, that they don't know you as a son or daughter of yours. We pray, Lord, that tonight would be the night, that you would call them, that you would awaken them, that they would know themselves to be adopted by you, that they would come forward in faith and repentance to receive you as their father. We pray, Lord, that you would do this work for anyone that's here that doesn't yet know you, whether it's one of the kids that's here that's grown up in the church or whether it's somebody visiting or even an adult that's been here for a long time and just all of a sudden through the, your work of the Holy Spirit you open their eyes. We pray you do this and, and we pray that you do it for Jesus' glory and for no other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so guys, this this is an amazing promise. I think if we think about Romans 8 as like a mountain range or Romans is a mountain range, Romans 8 is the top of the mountain range. This is kind of like right at the peak, you know. This is a peak promise here. And this promise is in verse 28, we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. That's amazing. That's an amazing promise. If you were going to be granted one wish, this would be it, right? This would be far better to take this instead of like unlimited money or health or any other thing. But to get a promise that all things, whether good or bad, whether wonderful or terrible, would all somehow work together for your ultimate good, that they would have to all contribute in some way to your ultimate happiness, this is the best possible promise. There's nothing better to ask for than this thing that we're given here. Now, I want to start by saying a few things that this promise is not. This promise is not all things are good. It's all good. You guys seen t-shirts like that or stickers? It's all good. You don't wear a t-shirt like that to a traffic accident. You don't wear that to an oncology ward, right? Not all things are good. That's not what this verse is saying. It's all good. Oh, don't worry. It's all good. It's not all good. Lots of things are terrible. Lots of things are horrible. It's not all good. It's also not the thing that like all things work together for good, like on their own. You know, one of the really common things in our culture is people say, everything happens for a reason. You ever hear people say that? that? That aren't Christians, that don't have any belief in God, and they're like, you know, I just believe everything happens for a reason. Everything's going to work out good in the end. You know, and they'll credit things like the universe or fate or something like that. I don't know exactly how that would work, guys. An impersonal universe, impersonal fate that's making sure that everything works out okay for you. Like, that's a really strange faith assumption, right? Like, that there's no intelligence in the world, but somehow all the things that happen, you're going to turn out just fine. No, if there's no God, there's no security like that. What this promise is, guys, is that God will personally cause all things to work together for your good. 
It's that God will do that. That, that everything good and terrible in your life has to conspire for your ultimate benefit. So we might ask, well, who's this promise for? This promise is for a specific group of people. And there's two descriptions of who those people are. And I'm going to read it to you. And in the ESV, the two descriptions are in front and behind the promise. So listen for it. Who are the people that inherit this promise? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see them? There's two things. This promise is for those who love God. This promise is for God lovers. And it actually turns out as I unpack this promise, this is a promise only God lovers would want anyway, okay? Because this ultimate good is about getting God, okay? So this is a promise for God lovers, and this is a promise for those, it says, who are called by God. And we're going to see what that is in a little bit. We get a little further into the text. But this promise is specifically for Christians. It's for people who love God because God has called them into a relationship of grace with God, okay? And so it's for Christians. You might ask, well, what's the good? If all things work for the good, what is the good? I think this is a really important question to ask. You know, what is the good? And this is a really important question for any worldview, any belief system, any philosophy. Anybody that's ever thought about life has to think about what is the good life? What is the ultimate good? What is the best thing my life could end with? What is the best place I could end up at? You know, what is the good? Every worldview needs that. What do you think our culture would say is the good or the good life? This is, I'll open you. Being happy, okay, so some sort of, like, happiness in the moment. What else? That's a good life. Comfort, we're big on comfort. Financial security is gigantic, right? That we would just know ourselves to be secure and we don't have to worry. Stuff. What else? Leaving a legacy. So, you know, if you're thinking a little more forward and beyond your own life, you might think about, like, am I going to leave some sort of legacy? And the crazy thing is, guys, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, all these things that we really go after, all these things we think are ultimate goods, they all evaporate, right? He says, under the sun, apart from Christ, all these things evaporate. And you need to ask yourself, what do you believe is the good life? What is the ultimate good that you look forward to? Well, I'll tell you what the good is in this text, this ultimate good that God causes everything in your life, your Christian, works towards this good. It's in verse 28. Let me read it again. 28 and 29. It says, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then listen to this for, so beginning of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's the good here? The good here, guys, is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's a good thing that this Romans 8.28 is going to. A lot of times we take Romans 8.28, and rightfully so, put it on a coffee mug or put it on things we're going to see, and that's great, you know? But we need to be thinking about what the good is. In verse 29, it says that the good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to finally be like Jesus in all of our thoughts, in all of our desires, in all of our loves, in all of our words, in all of our actions, in all of our habits, to, to clearly be Jesus' siblings, that's what it says in verse 29. Take a look at it. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It would, the ultimate good is that you would one day bear the true family resemblance of God's family. The true sibling of Jesus. To resemble him. It, it's like on the final day, you know, Jesus comes back. And it's not really the final day, but it's the final day of this whole saga that we're going through right now. When he returns and all of his people are gathered before and they've all been you know, glorified and made like him, that there could be some observer and they could say to Jesus, like, who are all these people that 
live just like you. And he would say, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. And that observer would go, that makes sense. They look like your brothers and sisters. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome for, for an observer that was thinking right to look at you and just be like, oh yeah, no, you look exactly like somebody that, that is a brother or sister of Jesus. You look like you're from that family. You know, and that's what he's saying is this ultimate good that we have, is that one day we're going to be conformed to the image of his son. Guys, the good life is to live in the immediate presence of God, which we're going to have when he returns, to live in the immediate presence of God, to enjoy him as our father, and to bear the life of his son in everything that we are, in all of our thoughts and deeds and desires and loves and actions, that we be just like Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? It'd be amazing to live in the immediate presence of God, seek visible presence, in a world that he's made new, bearing the true nature of Jesus in us to live in his world with him as his. That's the good life, amen? That's what we were made for. That's what everyone who loves God actually really wants when they're thinking straight. And that's what everyone who's been called by God, that's the thing they came to him for because they wanted that. That's the good life. That's what we long for. That's what keeps us going. And according to Romans eight twenty eight, that's what we're gonna get. This promise is that everything that happens to you, everything that happens to you, no matter how grisly or how glorious, everything that happens to you must be conspiring to ensure that future for you. God's making sure of that. God's making sure that every single thing is bringing apart that future for you. And, and I love what Paul starts with. Uh, you can miss this in the verse, beginning of verse 28. He says, and we know. We know this. Because we know it. Don't we? Do we? Do we know it? Do we know that God causes all things to work together for our good? Do we really, really know it? Because I think if we really, really believe this promise, it would cure a lot of things, right? It would cure a lot of anxiety. It would cure a lot of resentment. It would cure a lot of unforgiveness. It would cure a lot of depression. It would cure a lot of sadness. This would be, this is a cure-all type promise to believe. And so if we really, really believed it, I think, you know, like Paul says, we know this. And I'm like, I, I kind of know this, but do I know this? I was meeting up with a guy years ago. He was a new believer, and he was from Siberia. So somehow he ended up here, became a Christian when he got here. And um, he was really stressed out about his business. And he was really new to the Bible. And so, I, you know, you go right to Romans 8, 28, show him this verse. And, you know, he's really, after you tell me all how stressed he is, and I read him this verse, and he goes, okay, so I don't need to worry anymore. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, good. What else do you want to talk about? And I was like, really, that's it? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, cool. And then we had a bagel. It was really weird. It was like he knew it. You know, it just landed on the way it should land on all of us. Where you go, oh, okay. When he told me that, it's God's word. Yeah, okay, cool, done, right? That's, the, that's what it means to know it. How could we know it? How can we know this promise is for us, and how can we know that we're going to obtain it? And how can we trust in this promise? And I'll tell you, the way we can trust in this promise is to trust in the God that made the promise. And so what I want to unpack for you here tonight is I want to unpack for you the kind of God that made this promise. And there's three things I want to talk to you about about God. God is unleakingly sovereign. Now, maybe that's a word you don't use very often. Unleakingly. His sovereignty does not leak, okay? God is unleakingly sovereign. God is shockingly brilliant. And God is incomparably good. First, he's unleakingly sovereign. God's sovereignty doesn't leak, okay? He isn't like sovereign some of the times, and some of the times kind of drops the ball, 
Okay? Sometimes we have a temptation to think that way, that he's sovereign in some areas, but not other areas. God is sovereign. He's in control of our ultimate destiny with no leakiness. And we can see that in verses 29 through 30. Check it out. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A couple of things I want you to notice about these verses here is that it's really, it's a chain of five verbs, okay? We're going to do English here, right? There's a chain of five verbs. The, ch- the five verbs are, take a look at your text, foreknow or foreknew, predestined, called, and justified, okay? Or justified and glorified. So there's five of them right there. Okay, we've got a little slide about it that's going to come up in just a second. And notice that the subject of each of these five verbs is God. Okay, each of these five action words are something God does. You don't do these. God does them. God does all the foreknowing. He does all the predestining. He does all the calling. He does all the justifying. He does all the glorifying. It's all something he does. And notice, too, in this text that he does these five things to the exact same group of people. Okay, notice there's a pattern. It says those whom he... Something, he also something. Okay, so those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. It's the same group of people moving through. That's why I say his sovereignty is unleaky. Okay, there's nobody leaking out of the bottom. Nobody got dropped along the way. You know, those who are foreknown end up glorified, you know, all the way through this chain. Some people have called this the uh, golden chain of salvation. It's a chain because no one's lost in the middle, right? No one's lost between these different verbs. God's sovereignty is unleaky, which is really handy because if you look at this five, these five verbs, the, the, it's, it's, here it is right here. Okay, if you're a Christian right now, then you are at justified. Do you see that word justified right there? The second, the last one. If you're a Christian tonight, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, we'll talk about what justified is, but you can know for certain you're in that link of the chain. And what's handy about this is, if you're in that link of the chain, then you are certainly in the foreknown, the predestined, and the called, and soon will be in the glorified one. It's all one group of people moving all the way through this text. Do you guys see that? Before we move on, I want to make sure you believe me. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, the same group of people, he also called them. Those same group of people, he also justified. Those group, same group of people, he glorifies. Okay? It, moving along. Nobody's like dropping out the bottom. Okay? It's the same group of people. And so if you are tonight trusting in Jesus Christ, you're justified and all of these actions are something he does to you. You're not the actor in this. God is the actor in this. And so it's very handy because you can expect each one to be true of you. So let's go through these. And the reason I want to go through these is I want to show you that you can trust in this promise, Romans 8, 28, because of this, you're in this golden chain of salvation. You're in this process that God is doing. First one, those whom he foreknew. If you're a Christian tonight, it's because God, in eternity past, before he made the world, foreknew you. He foreknew you. And you might say, well, doesn't God like foreknow everyone and doesn't he foreknow everything? And he does. It's part of being God, okay? There are heresies out there about him not knowing the future, which is totally bizarre, the where he's surprised by things and stuff like that. He's not. He foreknows everything. But the fact that it's in this chain tells us that that foreknowledge is something very specific, okay? That foreknowledge is something very specific. It's a certain kind of knowing. It's the kind of knowing when the Lord spoke to Israel in Amos 3.2, he said to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, okay? You're like, wait, God doesn't know about the other countries? No, he does. 
but he foreknew that he only, he knew them in a special way. Like, like Adam knew his wife. There's an intimate personal knowledge. Only you are the only ones I know of the family of the earth. Or the way that he talked about Jeremiah. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. If you're a Christian tonight, it's because God foreknew you like that. He foreknew you with a special covenant love, and he set his affection on you before you were born. Actually, before he made anything. You know, we know from Ephesians 1, it's before the foundation of the world. Okay, so anybody's brain, like, kind of doing a little throbby thing? Anybody like, whoa, okay. Okay, well, we'll keep going. He, fore, he foreknew you. And we'll see in Romans 9 in a couple of weeks, that's when your brain really starts throbbing, in a couple of weeks that, that God didn't foreknow you, he didn't choose you because he saw that you were going to be a great person, okay? He didn't look forward and go like, he's going to pick an all-star team, and he foreknows, and he goes, oh, that one, that one, that one, that one, those are the right ones. No, it says in Romans 9 that it was purely based on grace, okay? And, and we know that he didn't choose us or foreknow us because he knew that we would choose him. That's what some people say is like, he chose us because he knew that we'd choose him through his foreknowledge. But it's actually just the opposite. The only reason we chose him is because he chose us first, right? Jesus said that to his disciples. You didn't choose me, I chose you. So those whom he foreknew, it says he also predestined. The second thing that he did before he even created the world, so these first two are before creation, is it says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. That's the second thing that he did for you if you're a Christian. That's something he did for you before he made the world. In foreknowledge, God loved you before time. In predestination, he chose a future for you that's absolutely glorious and filled with undivided joy with him. Okay? So the foreknowledge is about foreloving, about knowing who you are and how, setting his love on you. And predestination is that he would plan your perfect future, your perfect happiness with him forever. And you might be like, are you saying you actually believe in predestination? And I would say, of course I do. Okay? The Bible uses the word multiple times. So every Christian believes in predestination in some way. I just happen to believe in the very predestining kind of predestination. Okay? <laughs> very predestining kind of predestination. But everybody has some you know, view of predestination because it's in there. So nobody's denying that. If they're a biblical Christian, they have some view of predestination. Mine is very predestining. I believe that my destiny, my future with God forever with him in heaven is something that God made certain a really, really long time ago apart from me. And that my salvation is completely by grace. Completely by grace. It's all grace, all the way from eternity past. And it's an amazing comfort, guys, because I can't mess this up. You know, I really can't mess this up. This is something God has done. This is something I trust in him for. Okay, and then he says, those whom he predestined, he what? He also called. Okay, this is the first action in the chain that you might actually remember because this happened in your lifetime. If you're a Christian, he has at some point in your life called you. The first two happened before time. This is something that happened in your lifetime. And you might ask, well, you know, doesn't God call all people to repent and believe? And he does. That's the gospel call. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to put forward Jesus. Anyone who wants to receive him, come and receive him. It's something. It's trust in him, repent of your sin, and you will be saved. That's the gospel call. Some believe and some don't, and we've all experienced that as we share the gospel. But this calling is different. This calling always results in salvation. How do I know that? I know it from the chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. So everybody that got called in this way actually got saved, Okay. And so if you're a Christian, it's because God actually did an internal call into your heart. 
You know, if you heard the gospel and you believed it, it's because God called you internally. John 6, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So this calling is not just the gospel call that some, you know, fallible human shared God's infallible word and you heard it and maybe you believe, maybe you didn't. This is a calling where God actually summons you in the heart and brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you find yourself like irresistibly drawn to Jesus. And some of you will remember this, and some of you maybe grew up in a Christian family, you don't remember any time that you weren't a believer, but you know you are now because you're trusting in Jesus, maybe you don't remember this. But many of you remember this. You remember that you were going this way, and then all of a sudden you were going this way. And for some of you, it came as a great surprise. C.S. Lewis, it happened to him in a sidecar on the way to the zoo, which is really bizarre. So you know what sidecars are? They're ridiculous. Anybody ridden in a sidecar? It would take a lot of trust, you know? You never really have to trust God. So somebody's riding a motorcycle, and there's this little car lower hooked on the side that you ride in. It's weird. So imagine these adult grown men, Warney, his brothers, riding the motorcycle, and adult C.S. Lewis is in the little sidecar on the way to the zoo. It's a bizarre place to get saved. You know, it's like, it's a weird story to tell. So anyway, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, when we set out to the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. And I don't remember thinking about it on the way. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like, that's bizarre. And it's not that he hadn't heard the gospel and had long gospel conversations, because he did, especially with his friend Tolkien. They had late night conversations about Jesus, the one that wrote Lord of the Rings. So he had all these conversations. But then on the way to the zoo, God called him to spiritual life. It's the trippiest thing in the world, right? The spirit unexpectedly gave him life. And it was quite to his surprise, and maybe a surprise to you guys. A theological term for this is irresistible grace, that when God calls us and opens our eyes to who Jesus is, and we really see who he is for the first time, and we believe, it's like, he's amazing. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we follow Jesus? You know, now you think about him. There's, there's that great line. I don't know if I've shared this before. I repeat myself. But um, Dallas Willard was asked one time why he follows Jesus. And Dallas Willard's answer was, who else did you have in mind? Right? When you have had your eyes open to who Jesus is, it's like, who else would you have in mind? Like, Jesus is amazing. Okay, so that's called. Those whom he called, he also justified. The moment you believe, the moment C.S. Lewis did in his sidecar, you were justified. You were declared righteous. You were, you were made perfectly and permanently righteous. One way to describe this is that Jesus' perfect righteousness, which he earned in his life, is covered on you like a robe. You wear the righteousness of Jesus over you. Isn't that amazing? So that though you're still a sinner and though you still sin, your sins are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. And I just say tonight, guys, if, if you haven't, if you don't know that for yourself, if you're walking around kind of naked with your sins all exposed to God and he sees them and you're standing before him in judgment, I mean, you don't want to do that. Tonight, if you just trust in Jesus and just call out to God and say like, Hey, that thing, the crazy guy was talking about, I want that. I want Jesus's covering over me. I want his righteousness. I want you to forgive my sin. If you turn from your sin and trust in him tonight, you would leave justified. It's not something you work on. You don't get right with God through a process. He gives it to you instantaneously. And if you've received justification, we know from this chain that you will 100% be glorified. You'll be glorified. Those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. Glorification, guys, is when you become righteous, when he returns and he makes you righteous, 
under the robe. Okay? Like right now, you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus, but when he returns and makes you like his son in holiness, you're righteous under the robe. You're righteous in all of your thoughts, all of your loves, all of your desires, all of your habits, all of that, and it comes completely natural to you to, to behave exactly like Jesus. Like it says in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of, of God's son. And if you're justified tonight by trusting in Jesus, there is a 100% chance you will be glorified. That's what this text says, 100% chance. Did you guys notice the tense of the word there? It's weird, right? Because it's past tense. You think, well, isn't glorification something that happens in the future when Jesus returns and he makes us new and we reign with him in that world forever? It is. It's a future thing. Well, why is it in past tense? Kind of strange. I think it's in past tense, guys, because it's as good as done. These are God's actions. This is as good as done. All five of these verbs, guys, are God's actions, not ours. They're things that he does to us, not that we do for ourselves. Our future, guys, is entirely dependent on the power of God, not our own. Amen? Anybody happy about that? Guys, you know, nothing can keep him from fulfilling these promises. His sovereignty is unleaky. The theological term for that is perseverance of the saints. That he will persevere you to the end. That he will keep you believing and he will bring you to that place. Philippians 1.6 says this, For I am sure of this. There's another time Paul's sure. It's driving me crazy. He knows the other thing. He knows Romans 8, 28. He knows that. Now he's sure of this. Listen, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good to know? It's amazing. Or how about this? This is straight from the lips of Jesus. I give, the, talking about you, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Isn't that amazing? That, that my salvation is not up to me. If it were, I would have lost it. How many of you guys grew up in a tradition where you could lose your salvation? Yeah, did you lose it a lot? Yeah, most people that grew up in a tradition like that, they lost it, you know, weekly if they were paying attention. You know, it's this view that like somehow if you were to sin enough or do something that you did lose your salvation, then you'd, there'd be an altar call and you'd come up again and they'd be like, you again? It's like, well, yeah, I lost it, you know. Um, <laughs> It's not like that. This isn't something you lose. You don't drop it. It's like, oh, whoops, you know, like I lost it again. Guys, if it were up to us, we wouldn't last two seconds. This is the only way it can work, okay? Like religion's all about like that you earn your own salvation. You keep it going. You hold on tight. Make sure you don't lose it. It won't work. 100% guaranteed not to work. And you know it, you know? But God, this is the cool thing, guys, is that your God is unleakingly sovereign. Like his grip on you isn't like... Like the claw machine. How many of you guys play those when you see one of those claw machine things? Do you ever get anything? No, my wife's good at them. She's really good at them. It's so weird. So they're these really limp, probably oiled up claws, right? So there's like, you know, some like, I don't know, there's a phone or something in there. And it's like, eh, and you're like, I got it. You know, it's like, eh, right at the end, right? Guys, God's grip on you is not like that. God's grip on you is like a parent holding onto a toddler's hand near traffic. Okay, some of you kids know what that feels like. Like, like, I can't feel my hand, you know? I think you broke something, right? That's the kind of hold that he has on us, guys. He's unleakingly sovereign. And he will keep his promise, Romans 8, 28. Another thing to know about God that, kept, that made this promise to you is he's shockingly brilliant. I don't know if you've thought about God that way. 
He's brilliant. He's shockingly brilliant. The way he can weave everything that's good and bad into your life to make sure that it works for your everlasting happiness, that's shockingly brilliant. God is brilliant. Do you guys think of him that way? You might be like, oh yeah, you know, he's, he's wise. God is incredibly smart, okay? There's not even a right way to say it. He knows everything, and he knows all the ways everything connects, right? So he's shockingly brilliant. I want to give you two examples of that, shocking brilliance of God in making all things work together for good. The first one is Joseph. It's a great story, right? You had Joseph in Genesis. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. His brothers resent him. He's one of the younger kids, and they resent him, and they sell him as slavery. It's probably partly his fault. He's kind of annoying anyway, you know? And so they resent him. They, they sell him into slavery. He ends up a slave to a rich man named Potiphar. Things are going well until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of sexual assault. He ends up in prison for like 12 years. That's something we don't realize. Like, that's a really long time to be in prison. He's in prison for like 12 years. He finally gets out. He kind of rises to power in Egypt. I'm abbreviating the story. And he ends up in charge of a lot of Egypt. In fact, he's in charge of their grain stores and all the things that they're storing. Meanwhile, there's a famine. Joseph's brothers and his dad need food. And so the brothers come to beg for bread in Egypt. That's where you go when you're looking for food. And you have some money, but you don't have any food. So you go there. And who do they find in charge of the grain stores in Egypt but their little brother, Joseph, which is awkward, very awkward. It's actually quite terrifying to find out that the only source of food, it turns out to be, you know, the second most powerful person in the world is the one you sold into slavery. This is not good. And it becomes even scarier when their dad dies because in Genesis 50, verse 15, the brothers say this, it may be that Joseph will hate us. Well, yeah, and pay us back for all the evil we've done to him. They're thinking, okay, dad died, now game on, he's gonna kill us. So they're super afraid. So they make up a lie that, hey, dad's dying wish is that you'd forgive us. I know it's kind of crazy, but you have to. And this is what Joseph says. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to think about the way that God caused all that evil in Joseph's life? to not only spare his life, but to spare the whole life of his family, to the covenant people of God. Guys, not only does God cause the evil things done to Joseph to work for his good, but those things were actually turned out in the story to be necessary ways to bring about good. Okay, That those evils that happened to him were, were necessary in the plan of God to bring about this good, to preserve God's whole covenant family. That's the brilliance of God. You know, that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, that's what you're doing. Wow. And those aha moments, the few that you probably have in your life, you maybe have a few, okay, of those. You go like, oh, that's what he was doing. Most of them we don't know in this life. But those little aha moments are just tiny previews of what it's going to be like in the world to come when we're going to see what God was doing through all this, right? We're going to see one day how he worked all things together for our good in a way that he's the only one that's smart enough to figure out. It'll be like looking at the front of a tapestry, you guys, or maybe embroidery, if you guys are into that. But a tapestry is, you know, a little woven picture, right? You got a picture and it's all different threads. What does it look like on the back? Nasty, right? It's like a bunch of, you know, knots and rough strings and it makes no sense on the back. That's the side of God's providence you see right now in this life for the most part. Occasionally we see little glimmers of the front, but mostly we're seeing this. And we're seeing things in our life that are ugly and they look meaningless. It looks totally meaningless. You know, we often will be tempted to say things like, 
what possible good could come from this? And in a room this size, you guys have already had unbelievable sufferings and things that we could say that about. And there's more to come. I know I'm super fun on holidays. Always. We're going to do Romans 9 on the 4th of July. This is, yeah, I know. I'm fun. I'm available for parties. But what, we, what we're seeing in this life, guys, is the back of this tapestry. And we're seeing just a knot, a mess, and we can't interpret it now. You know, but we think we can. We're like, God's got to answer for this. What's he thinking? What's he doing? You know, and all that. But we, what we don't see and what we will see in the world to come is we're going to see the other side. And it's going to be amazing, guys. It's going to be amazing to see the shocking brilliance of God when we see what he's been weaving. And we've been like, oh, that's what that was about. You know, that's what that heart condition was about. That's what that death was about. That's what that tumor was about. That's what that, you know, mental illness was about. That's what, I mean, over and over again, right? Tons of things that we could go, we'll be able to see like, that's what he was doing. He was causing all things to work together for my good. Give you one other example, Jesus, right? Consider the crucifixion, the worst crime ever committed. This is the most innocent person ever, right? The sinless son of man. Add to that the fact that he is our creator and we owe him every bit of gratitude for everything we've ever had. And so did the people who crucified him, who physically did the deed. We owe him for everything. He's this innocent man. So Jesus, the innocent God-man, he was unjustly arrested, dragged through multiple trials, unjust trials. He was unjustly beaten and whipped and pierced with a crown of thorns. And then his, his wrists... And his feet were pierced with nails. He was nailed up to a piece of wood. He was left there to gasp and writhe and try to avoid the pain in all kinds of different ways, but it was inescapable. As he was mocked and spit upon and made a spectacle of, right? That was the worst evil, right? That's the worst kind of evil done to the best kind of person. Imagine what his friends must have thought. Think about his friends. Think about people like Peter and, and, and the, the women that were, were near the cross. Imagine what they would have thought. They would have thought things like, what good could possibly become of this, right? They would have watched and they were like, what is God doing? You know, they would have thought like, why has God forsaken us? Why has he left him to this? Who's safe if he's the one enduring this, right? And yet God was causing all things to work together for their good and for your good. Listen to how Peter interpreted in Acts 2.22. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you with mighty works and signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I love that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. I love that. So he's saying on the one hand, that this is God's plan. And on the other hand, it was done by lawless evil men. This is clearly evil. This is clearly bad. This is, you know, the worst kind of evil in history. And he's saying, and yet, according to God's plan, this is something that turned for their and our everlasting good. Amazing. God's brilliant, you know? Like in Corinthians, it says, you know, that this is the way he defeated the powers of this world, the enemies of this world. And he said, if they were paying attention, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Like this is the way they got defeated. Like God defeated the powers of evil this way. He redeemed us through this immense evil that occurred. Third thing, and I'm not going to take long on this because this is Gabe's passage, is God is he's unleakingly sovereign, he's shockingly brilliant, and he's incomparably good. Next week, we're going to look at this passage, but I'm going to just read it for you. Romans 
8.31. says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is super hard to discern God's goodness in the midst of throbbing pain of grief or the uncertainty of an oncology ward. But the cross, guys, assures us that God is incomparably good to us. He didn't withhold his own son, right? Like, I'm not giving up my sons or my daughter for any of y'all, and neither would you. God loves you so much, he didn't withhold his only son. And he says, you know, if he didn't withhold his son, how will he not graciously give you all things? As God is for your everlasting good, he always has been. Like this text tells us that his intentions for your good occurred before time. Okay? He was for your everlasting good before time. Is that true? Which means there was never a time that he wasn't for your everlasting good. Because there wasn't time then. It's a little bit of a trick, I know. But there was never a time that he didn't love you and he didn't plan for your everlasting good. So next time you're suffering, which, you know, we all will, there's three things you can remember. God will turn this for my ultimate good. Absolutely for sure. He will turn this for my ultimate good. We can know that from this text. We can know that whatever's happening to you must be absolutely necessary to bring you safely home to him. Any suffering you go through, it must be absolutely necessary to safely bring you home to him. Think of the story of Joseph. And, there, and we can also know that in some way, this suffering that you have is going to reverberate for eternity. It's going to re- reverberate in joy and glory to God for all eternity. You know, Paul talks about it's, it's building for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That whatever you're going through is going to reverberate in explosions of joy and glory to God in the world to come forever. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your promise. Lord, help us to know it. I feel like I know it now. Lord, help us to know it tomorrow and the next day. Lord, help us to believe your promise. There'd be no reason not to believe you. <laughs> you are unleakingly sovereign. You are brilliant, shockingly brilliant, and incomparably good to us. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us, that you would feed us through a reminder, but you would also feed us through your spirit as we'd have true communion with your son, Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with his presence, fill us with his life as we take this, this supper tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.